I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. This is going to be like a Q&A, um, and the Q&A can, can be about whatever you want it to be about. Um, you can ask any question you want. Uh, as always, I have a rule during a Q&A, and my rule is I'm not going to make stuff up. If I don't know the answer to a question, I'm going to tell you I don't know. I'm not going to, I can't pretend to be able to answer every question. But if I can, I'd like to either give you a good answer or even direct you towards a, a direction that's positive or just say, I don't know, and move on, <laughs> which is okay. I'm okay with that, too. Okay. Um, they're similarly related questions, okay. in my opinion. Um, the, the, to me, simpler one that maybe you can just look up later and do all the words <laughs> checking that you need to do. In Malachi 3.10 and 3.15, so we're in Malachi 3 and a few verses away from each other, there's the word which is prove, test, or tempt. Okay? I looked those up, and they are the same Hebrew word that's used. And I see it used in a positive and a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. So that kind of confused me. Mm-hmm. Um, so could the question be, um, why is it that, say, in Malachi 3.10, we're encouraged to test the Lord? And then in what, 3.15? 15. 15. <clears throat> now we will call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Mm-hmm. And that would be basically saying in a negative sense, people so, putting out to the test. Since my questions are related, do you want to hear both of them? Uh, sure. So in Isaiah 7, 11 through 13, God tells Ahab to ask for a sign. Ahab responds, I will not tempt the Lord my God. And then God kind of gets him in trouble for having a tood. And then the same word is used in Deuteronomy six fifteen which Jesus is clearly quoting in Matthew 4, 7 and Luke 4, 12. Mm-hmm. And God seems to get mad at him. Okay, so the he gets mad at Ahab. In Matthew 12, 38, Jesus rebukes them for asking for a sign. Matthew 12, 48. So Ahab says, I won't tempt the Lord and ask for a sign, and he gets in trouble. And then Jesus in Matthew 12, 38 rebukes them for asking for a sign. Yeah. Um, and you're saying these are the same So, yeah, the, words. the word that was used in um, Isaiah 7, 11 through 13 with Ahab is the same word that is used in Deuteronomy 6, 16, which is what Jesus is quoting in Matthew 4, 7. Okay, so, uh, in case anybody got lost in the mix there, <laughs> what we're saying is, to put it short... You shall have, not tempt the Lord your God is... Yeah. what I'm referring to. We have, yeah, do not tempt God. And then we have God saying, using okay. the same word, so we'll say, tempt me. And then we have God saying, Give me, ask me for a sign. And then God also saying, how dare you ask for a sign? What's wrong with you? And let me add one more into the mix. Um, Mary is told that God is going to, uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon her and she will be with child. And she's like, how, or excuse me, before, this, before that statement, there, she goes, how can this be, right? I've never known a man. So she's like, how can this be is the statement. Then she, she gets an explanation. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Um, whereas Zacharias, the, the father of uh, John, he's like, how can this be? Like, you know, you're going to have a kid. And he goes, how can this be? And he has, he has made mute as like a sort of a chastisement for him saying, how can this be? So here we have like three situations where the same wording is used. And it's like one point it's commendable, and one point it's it's condemnable. It's it's bad. Once it's good, it's bad. I would say here the answer is not in the Hebrew or in the Greek. I don't think. I think that the answer is just in the context in the English. Now this makes it easy. <clears throat> the truth is that a lot of these questions, where we're like, but what does it say in the Hebrew? What does it say in the Hebrew? Is that when you actually look at the Hebrew or you look at the Greek or you look at the resources, as I do, to try to go like, are there commentaries on this? Is there information I can get from these resources about the Greek or Hebrew? Generally speaking, you walk away with the exact same information you started with. It turns out that the translators usually just did a good job uh, for the most part. So generally speaking, it says the same thing in the English as it says in the Greek or Hebrew. The Greek and Hebrew words aren't, I mean, some people think, I know like, for instance, there's one in Calvary Chapels in particular, we often hear is dunamis. Have you guys heard this one before? Yes. Dunamis. 
is the dynamite word, right? Like dunamis will come upon you. Or excuse me, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive dunamis, power. You receive power to be witnesses. And so they say dunamis. That's where we get our English word dynamite. So the power is like this explosive power that God's giving you. So I remember hearing that and then like looking it up in these Greek resources. And I couldn't find a single Greek resource that said something about dynamite. You know, and, and the truth is, yeah, our English word is connected, you know, over generations. But did you know there's no dynamite in the first century? <laughs> the apostles not thinking dynamite power. There's no dynamite. They don't have it. Maybe in China. I don't know, but not, but not where they were. And so it's, it's just not there. It's, it's not in the text. Really, the word means dunamis. You know what it means? Ability. It's just a generic word for ability. It means ability, enablement. You'll be able to do something you, wouldn't, you weren't able to do. It's that simple. It's still beautiful. It's still wonderful. It just maybe doesn't preach as bombastically, pun intended. <laughs> bombastically. <laughs> Either went over your head or under your head. I'm not sure which one. Let's be honest. It went under. It just wasn't funny. But um, so the same thing here, I think the context is this, is like with Mary, she asks God, I want to understand how this will happen. Whereas Zacharias, he's like, I don't believe right i doubt you how, how can this be it's, it's an it's an unbelief thing so she's rewarded he is he is chastised and then when god says uh bring in the tithe into the into the storehouse test me in this that's a test of faith where i give i give of the tithe this is old testament here i'm not saying that this is i don't think there's a direct application i'll do a video on tithing one day but um <laughs> i'm gonna get in a lot of trouble too when i do it but um when uh when, when they would, the, the, the Israelite says, I'm going to give according to the law of, of Moses and just trust God. That's an act of faith, isn't it? That's testing God in a faithful way. Whereas uh, when Satan is, test, is, is saying to Jesus, you know, jump off this, this pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself to the ground and his angels will, cast you, will catch you. And he goes, don't tempt the Lord. That's like snake handlers when they're dancing with snakes. You're just asking for it, dude. Like you're not, this isn't a step of faith. This is a step of foolishness. You know, so that's like the do not tempt the Lord. So I think the idea here isn't perhaps in the original language. It's just in the context of the passage. Um, and I, I'm taking, because I haven't looked up these original words. I'm just, you looked them up already. So I'm taking your perspective on that. But does that, do, I, do you feel like that question was answered? Yeah. I, just, Ahab and the sign was the only one that it, it seemed strange to me that God gets in, him in trouble. Yeah. And I think... From what you're saying, what I would understand is that when God is telling you to do something, what he calls for is obedience. Mm -hmm. So for him to tell him, oh, no, I'm not going to do that, basically now you're disobeying God. So he's put himself in the wrong place, so he gets chastised. Yeah. Yeah, and there's another king of Israel as well at similar passage where he's told, uh, take these arrows and smash them. And he's, he's like, smash, smash, smash. He doesn't really do it much, and God's like, if you would have smashed them more, I would have destroyed your enemies even more. And there's like, what's going on here? It it's just seems to be this, this lack of faith. Yeah. This lack of faith, this lack of trusting in God. So test God in the area of believing in him and trusting in his promises and trusting in his goodness. But don't test him in the area of, oh, he'll protect me as I do stupid things. <laughs> like that is not how you would. <laughs> don't, don't test him in that. Don't tempt because that's tempting the Lord as though you are asking him to, to deal with you. Like, I'm, I'm being reckless. It's kind of like, you know what I mean? Your, your kids can test your goodness, or they can test your badness. or Not your badness, but your, uh, I don't want to say that because I've come off wrong, but, but I already said it. But <laughs> they can test your, yeah, your, your sense of, uh, of, of justice. <laughs> you know, because you watch your kid and you're like, don't, you're going to keep doing, all right, now I'm getting involved. Because you went too far. And, or it could be them, you know. Trusting in, oh, my, my dad, would, I trust my dad, he'll do this with me, he'll catch me, he'll whatever it is, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, the good news is most of these issues, you find your answer in the English, not in the original language. So, it's kind of a good thing in my opinion. I don't know the exact context of the Ahab that you were saying there for the whole thing, but from what I know of Ahab, he's not necessarily one of the good kings of Israel. Mm. So, I feel like there's also the thing of Ahab's not a good king to begin with, and now he's going to quote scripture back at God like oh no God you said in Deuteronomy that we're not supposed to tempt you and God's like D that's not a good example of using scripture 
You know, I think in the same way that Satan used scripture at Jesus. Oh, God said he'd do this. Like, no, that's not the same thing. But this is actually uh, Ahaz. But but yes, he's known for being a terrible king, a very evil king. And uh, and Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So we have Isaiah's vision in the year that Uzziah dies and Ahaz steps in instead. And Uzziah was like a good king and Ahaz was terrible. Um, yeah, so let's see. Um, yeah, they, it says in Second Chronicles twenty eight twenty seven that Ahaz, when he died, they didn't even bury him uh, in the tomb of his fathers of, of the kings of Israel. They didn't even get he didn't even get like the honorable burial, so to speak. Um, I'm looking for oh yeah, there's just whole chapters I have to read, so I'll skip that. But but yeah, he's a bad guy. So in Ezekiel nine and Revelation seven, the parallel verses about marking the remnant of Israel um, is. Do you believe that that is a spiritual a spiritual marking or an actual physical marking of them? Hmm. Um, okay. Revelation 7. Um, these are the 144,000 sealed. I don't know off the top of my head the, the relationship between the Ezekiel 9 passage and Revelation 7, like how, to, how they work together. I don't know off the top of my head that answer to that question. Um, but the Revelation passage, so he says um, in Revelation 7, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Then I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Um, so that there, there's a mark that goes upon them. Uh, then it lists twelve thousand from each tribe, and these are. It seems to be really clear in the passage. These are these are Israelites from specific tribes in Israel that are being marked. A lot of people think. I get questions about this actually. Who are the hundred forty-four thousand? And I'm like, well, the passage seems to indicate they're twelve thousand from Zebulun, twelve thousand from Joseph, twelve thousand from Naphtali. Like these are just what it says. Yeah, there's a Jehovah's Witness teaching on this that goes way off the page, in my opinion. Um, so then the mark, it seems that the function of the mark is um, partially so that when these future judgments come, they don't, they don't hurt the 144,000. They don't hurt those that are marked. And so there's like a time of tribulation and they're, they're not being hurt by those things. Kind of like how in Exodus, some of the plagues affected all people, but several of the plagues didn't affect the Jewish people they, the Hebrews, they only affected the Egyptians. So they're kind of protected from those judgments. Um, is the mark physical? I, I, my best guess, just a guess, is that it's, it's a spiritual mark in that it's, it's a real mark, but it's somehow spiritual. Like, I don't think you'll see something on them. I mean, even if it says on their foreheads. But then if I say that that's not physical, then isn't the mark of the beast you know, than just a spiritual mark. Well, no, I think that one would be physical because you can't buy or sell without it. Like it's, it's changing the way you can interact with when you're at the market, you know? So it's having some sort of physical impact in life like that. Whereas the spiritual marks more about the judgments from spiritual things, not, not landing upon you. That'd be my, my opinion for what it's worth. Yeah. Your follow up or, um, no, not, not at this time. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a bunch of questions. He's trying yeah. to be polite to let other yeah. people yeah, ask questions too. So, Yeah. Any other opinions on that? Does that... See, it's easy with you guys because we're all at Calvary Chapel. We're all futurists. We all see the seven-year tribulation as a literal future event. A lot of people are going to say, oh, no, no, that's all totally spiritual. Or that was long, long ago. Or the, and then, the, then there's a whole other debate going on there. Um, so I have two questions. Um, I want to know if you know why God made the earth and, um, if he knew he made it in seven days and then do you think that good and bad is subjective? Um, wow, those are three very different questions. Well, one so let me, is combined. Not really, but well, not in my head anyway, maybe, but okay. So, um, why did God make the earth? Um, the, well, the, the shortest answer is um, 
let me see here. It is um, uh, that he made all things for his pleasure. That's the short answer. The short answer is the scripture says God made it for his pleasure. He just, he wanted to. It pleased him to do so. But there's way more data than that, right? So we also have like Romans 1, uh, or excuse me, Romans 9, that talks about the, not only the, the destiny of the saved and unsaved, but it talks about some of the purpose behind it. So like some of the reason behind it. So now we're going to talk about the world of humans. And so that it's, it's in, the, in the saved, according to Romans 9, it's that he might show his grace and mercy and love to them. And in the unsaved, that he might show his justice, right? And his wrath. That there is, there's a sense in which this is the, the good, right, the righteousness of God on display, even, even in judging the wicked. Um, so then there's, there's these different, I guess there's these different things achieved in displaying who God is in creation. But there's more. Because he doesn't just bring us around temporarily to show us things and then we're gone. But rather he joins us to himself for all eternity. So like that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so that we're brought in to know God for, for eternity, forever. We're, we're a people who are going to be in God's image after having experienced the fall and the restoration of all things. And then in God's image with God for all eternity with each other in fellowship. So in a sense, God is making this massive, eternal, loving family. This massive, loving family who, who is chosen to know him and to walk with him and be in him and to experience the riches of his grace forever. So I mean, so I could say for his pleasure is a big blanket term. For his glory is another way to put it. Um, but the, what you see him doing in the, in, the, in the saved and unsaved in particular is um, a demonstration of both his righteousness and his love. Yeah. And then for us to experience that love, that like a billion years from now, we'll be part of the perfect family, finally, instead of the families we grew up with. <laughs> just, just kidding, sort of. <laughs> so then do you so, know how he, if he knew that he was, um, he made the earth in seven days, or is that just like an estimate? Okay, this is a tough one. And I'll tell you why. Um, I don't think Genesis is perhaps as clear on this as I want it to be. Um, but others would, would, would already be throwing things at me right now for saying that. <laughs> so <clears throat> let me give you uh, a couple, just off the top of my head. This is not, don't consider this my teaching on this topic, but this is just some things off the top of my head since you're asking. Um, okay, Genesis records creation in how many days? Seven. Yeah, six plus one, him resting, yeah, seven days, yes. you know, all together in the whole story there. Um, one of the questions I have as I approach Genesis is, then is this, are these literal 24-hour days? Or are these, another option is, are these like epochs of time? That's another, that's, that's the sort of day-age theory. Each day represents some sort of larger amount of time. Some say it's equally a thousand years apart. Others would say it's, it's indeterminate. It's just a day is like back in the day. You know, like how long, well, how long it goes back in the day? Well, it depends on how old you are. You know, <laughs> you know it just kind of depends. Um, and then another theory, another idea is that Genesis is rather not interested in how long these days were because it's, it's poetry and it's not, in t not, now don't get me wrong. We're not saying that it's wrong. Okay. All three of these theories are saying Genesis is true. This is, these are, this is Bible-believing responses, okay? One would say then, though, it's poetry. It's not meant to be literal 24-hour days or epochs of time. It's not even meant to really establish the order of things. So what are some of the arguments that support this, either of any of these views? Well, we, we know the 24-hour view, right? They say, hey, you have the, the, uh, the, the word day, then you have like a number, and you have, there was, there was what in the first day? The evening and the morning. So you have evening, morning, and the first day. Like, that's clearly a 24-hour period. <clears throat> There's a couple that we're familiar, I think, with that line of reasoning. There's a couple of challenges they present to that, and they say, um, well, you, you know, it's, you have a rule. Like, this is what Answers in Genesis says. We have a rule that, that if there's the, the term morning and evening and a number and the word day, it always means a 24-hour day. The problem is that I don't know of any other passages where this, this happened. So we've made a rule, but the rule is just for Genesis 1. You know, do you know what I mean? Like maybe that's a little too strong of a way to approach it. Um, 
<clears throat> we also have some other concerns, which is some of, the, some of the events that happen on day six. Some people say, you know, how, how is that one day? How is that, you know, like, so Adam's made, then he, God makes all these animals, samples of every animal that's in the world. He makes that Adam might name them. Okay, or at least most of the animals. Not actually, not every animal. It's all the beasts, specific ones, beasts of the field. You know, there's certain ones he names. Not every animal, but then he names them all, and then he puts them in a deep sleep, and then he forms Eve, and then he wakes them up, and then he names Eve, and then <clears throat> some people say that couldn't have happened in a 24-hour period. Um, I don't know how strong that argument is. I'm, but I'm, I'm like, I'll listen. I mean, you're, you're saying we believe the Bible. We're just trying to understand its pages, you know. So I'm, I'm listening to anybody who's in that camp. Um, another view is this, the idea that <clears throat> we've got the first three days and the second three days, and they seem to overlap. So the statement is this, with the poetic view. They say we have, we have, uh, we have the, this, this back and forth thing happening where he creates sort of like a space or a place for things, and then he puts the things in them. And that's kind of the, the, the order of things, poetically. So he says, let there be light. Um, darn it. I'm not going to be able to explain this view. This isn't my view, so I'm trying to remember off the top of my head here. I have a big file on my computer. Kirk gets it. I get it. Of course Kirk gets it. <laughs> Anyways, I won't be able to exp- expound on it today. But, well, but I mean, the, I have my Bible right here. I don't want to, I I don't want to read the whole chapter to you right now. <laughs> okay, so the view is that... Um, that we've got this 24-hour periods, that we've got indeterminate ages, and that we've got a poetic view of things, right? Um, now, I, I talked about, a little bit about the poetic view of things. Then there's the, the age, the day-age theory. This is like what Hugh Ross thinks and reasons to believe their ministry. The, they don't think that they're a thousand-year periods of time. They just think they're just various periods of time, but it, but it's recording the history of the earth. And you're like, well, then how is the sun made so late in the history of the earth? How does that work? Well, their view is that this is all coming from the perspective of the earth. So you, it, the, the story is being described as though you're on the earth. And um, there might be support for this. Might be. I haven't double-checked into this, but I've heard one teaching on it where they were saying that the Hebrew of where God created the lights in the heavens and he creates the, the sun and the, the stars and the sun and the moon, that the term there, the terms that are being used, it's not that they're being created out of nothing, but rather they're being revealed. And so the idea is that the mists and stuff that were on the earth are at that point clearing up, and now you can see the stars and see the sun. So anyways, those are some of the views. I have a ton of homework to do on this topic. One day I want to, what I want to do is I want to survey all of the, not just Genesis, but there's creation passages in in, uh, Psalms and in Job where it talks about creation, right? When, when God's questioning Job at the end of Job, it talks about creation, how creation happened. And I want to look and say, which of these views holds together all of these passages? Because I find that we get a full view when we look at all the scriptures on a, on a particular topic. And so I'm, I'm a little on the fence. So there's, there's that. Now, the theory I'm not very happy about is the theory that Genesis is just wrong because they're a bunch of primitive Bronze Age writers and that sort of thing. I think that that's... Um, it, it ignores inspiration. It just ignores the fact that God inspired the scriptures and what was written. Yeah. And then do you think that um, good and bad is subjective? Do I think good and bad are subjective? Um, when you say subjective, do you mean not real? Well, no, I mean it because, ironically, I've been watching a show called Gotham, and most of the villains, their motives... Um, are actually based on they want to make a better world, but then they get it twisted, and then that's how they become bad. But the whole like plot of them wanting to make a better world, like that seems good, and then that's why I think like um, maybe good um, is subjective in some instances. Um, but then I want to know your opinion on that. Um, I I don't. I don't know what you mean by subjective. I'm just being honest. I don't know what you mean. Um, well, do you not know what subjective means? Yeah, I know what it means. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> I can look. When you say is good subjective. Let me give you an example. Um, a man, for fun, tortures and kills a little baby. For fun. No other reason. Is that evil? 
Well, <laughs> you're already off to a wrong start. <laughs> <laughs> if it's strictly for fun, yeah. then he um, it's bad in my opinion. But I think that that's, um, I guess, his way of having fun. Well, Maybe we all agree it's his way of having fun. The question yeah. is, is it evil? Is it morally bad? I think it's evil because we're taught that torturing um, innocent lives, like lives that can't fight back, that's evil. So I think that that's why um, I think that that's evil. So if we were taught that torturing innocent lives is okay, would it be okay then? Well, unfortunately, yeah. Okay, so there you go. Now I know what you mean by subjective. So by subjective, you mean we create our own version of morality, and we just we just call it okay, we call it good, we call it bad, and we just roll with it. So I do not believe in that in any way, shape, or form. Um, I think that that uh, that's like a game we play. That's like acting like mor- morality is a game. And I think that there's really evil and there's really good. Um, in a sense, if 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 you're a, if if you're a Christian and you think that morality is subjective, you're like saying that Jesus died because we broke the rules of monopoly. Subjective morality. Like, why did he even go to the cross? Like, oh, those are just the rules that we were playing by for fun. Or, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, <clears throat> if a man tortures a baby for fun, that's, then that's the whole story. There's no more details to it, right? He just for fun tortures and kills a baby. That is absolutely morally wrong. The man deserves yeah. to die. He absolutely deserves it. Um, and whether, now I might, maybe nobody in the world agrees. Maybe everybody in the world thinks it's okay. And they laugh and they think it's entertainment. It's still wrong. Why? Because it's objectively wrong. It's actually wrong. It's really wrong. So when people say subjective morality, what I hear in my head is I hear them saying like, la-la morality, like pretend morality. We're just going to pretend this stuff's wrong. But it feels good because then, I, then when I approach a group of people who disagree with me, I could go, well, that's your moral truth. And I feel like I'm being nice. But wait, are you really being nice or are you subjectively being nice? Maybe it'd be nice to tell them they're wrong. It's just you start to enter into la-la land. Um, If we can't say that torturing and murdering a child for fun is plain wrong, end of story, then we have gone to a very dark place in reality. So yeah, if if morality is true, then that means it's objectively true. That's just what it means. To me, objective means it's actually true. There There really are moral truths and there really are rights and wrongs now is it complicated yeah oh yeah oh yeah you know it's wrong for parents to kick their kids out of the house well sometimes it's the right thing to do you know it's so it depends on the scenario you know you need all the details you need to understand you know exactly why these things are going on why they're happening you know have to understand the full scope but there's still a clear like right or wrong quality that's actually true really is right, really is wrong. And then you can make actual moral judgments on things. So that I, <clears throat> if I, and, and I, you know, I've been a, I don't know if you know this, I, I was a domestic violence counselor. I'm not doing it right now, but I used to do it for years. And um, occasionally um, we would get a guy in there who would say things like, um, you know, she, she's crazy, man. She wants me to hit her. She wants me to hit her, you know? And, you don't understand. Like she's she's nuts. <laughs> like that's the way it has to be, you know. And and he feels good about it. He feels, in fact, like what he's doing is right when he's abusive to this woman. And I, because I have objective morality, I can tell him what a moron he is, <laughs> right? And I sit there for fifty-two weeks telling him how wrong he is. But if I'm subjective, what do I say? Well, if that's what works in your relationship, you know, and that's how you view reality, and that's your morality, then no, I'm like you're a horrible human being. I'll shame him and, and send him to jail if he doesn't change his ways, <laughs> you know? That's absolutely, and I'm right to do so, you know? Um, and that's, <clears throat> that's because morality is real. So, yeah, subjective morality. That's why I ask you, what do you mean by it? Because when you, you get down to the questions, you start to find out that it's like, I live my life like more objective morality is true, but sometimes I avoid God by pretending it's subjective. And... Um, and I think it's a way, it's a darkness upon our hearts. Yeah. I think Hitler was making a better world. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Hitler thought he was making a better world. Yeah. Yeah. Here's another question for you, a thought experiment. Let's say that Hitler succeeded 
and the Nazis took over the world. And oh, a, they're all whispering about a TV show. I know what you're talking about. I haven't watched. I watched some of that show. I forget what it's called. <clears throat> yeah, but let's say Hitler succeeds. He takes over the world, right? And he either brainwashes or kills anyone who disagrees with him so that now the entire population, they believe that those Jews deserve to die and whoever else he eradicated next, they all deserved it. And the world is a better place now. And now we're purifying our race and we're pushing, say, evolution forward and we're becoming better people. Are they right? The whole world thinks that this, this massacre of these people was correct and true. Does that make it right? Now, if you're subjective morality, then the true answer is there is no right and wrong, but since we all agree, let's just go with it. But if you have objective morality, then we can say, oh, no, that was wrong. You people, you are all crazy. Objective morality is like reality, objective re or moral reality, moral realism is what you call it, right? Where you go, hey, um, there's a speaker right there. And if everyone in the room tells me, Mike, there's no speaker there, I'm like, yeah, you're all crazy. <laughs> like, it's really there, because I, I believe in objective speakers. But if it's subjective speakers, it could be like, oh, look, Barney's right here next to me. And you all look at me and go, oh, that's good. If you want to pretend Barney's there, go ahead. That's good for you. But morality doesn't work that way. Morality's more like the like reality. So do you know how it all started then? Like, Because um, if we do, if there is um, object, objective morality, then, like, how did that all, or... Actually, is there any evidence to support that it started somehow? Um, if morality started, then it's probably made up. So, for instance, let's say that morality started when people just started making up rules for society. Well, that feels made up then, doesn't it? Morality's not real, it's just rules for society. Like... We drive on the right side of the road instead of the left. Why? Because that's how it works. As long as we all agree, it works fine. People start disagreeing, it doesn't work. Um, but we see morality as grounded in the very nature and character of who God is. God is an eternal being, always existent, and he is good. And so morality flows from who he is. And so I can say that you know, torturing and murdering that baby is wrong because it's opposed to God. And so it, it stems from his nature. And I think only in the Christian worldview do we have like this you know, a, a, basically a monotheism worldview where there's an eternal God who is good, who is morally good, do we have a grounding for saying that morals are real? Because he's the one that makes that all a reality. But if not, then, we're, then we are just floating around. Nothing's right. That's like what Richard Dawkins says. Richard Dawkins, he's like, you know, nothing's really right. Nothing's really wrong. We're just machines for propagating our DNA. Um. <laughs> And how sad, um, because he's got the blinders on, you know. Yeah. Uh, anybody else have a question? If, if you go to heaven or you go with Satan, um, is it really that, um, like, I guess um, the Bible, I guess, like, how kids learn the Bible, they um, say little stories, but, like, um, Satan dramas, like, this place of evil and like um, what your um, fears and all that are always like in your mind. Um, is that really like um, Satan drum or is that kind of like exaggerated? Because since this is like technically belongs to the devil, then it's like Earth is not um, not like totally bad, but it's not totally good. Yeah, so Satan's, Satan's realm, so to speak, is here right now. Um, hell, he's not in hell. No one's in hell at the moment. Yeah, that's a future, Lake of Fire future event. Where yeah, the dead that's... are raised and judged and cast into the Lake of Fire. And then it won't be Satan's realm. He's not ruling anything there. He's not in charge. He's not the boss. He's not the warden. He's, he's a prisoner, so to speak. Yeah, and he's not running the place. So the problem is that we've we've got loaded into our heads like cartoons from when we were kids <laughs> instead of scripture. And so we think of hell and we think of like, we know very little often about what the scripture actually says about it, but we know more about like, well, now one Bugs Bunny cartoon, <laughs> right? Like Satan's down below and there's, yet in scripture, uh, I think it's in, in the book of Revelation, he writes, to, is it Pergamus where he says where Satan's throne is? 
Pergamos, like of all places. Like, but it's a physical location on earth. And if my understanding of Ezekiel is right, in Ezekiel 28, we, we read about the king of Tyre, and he seems to be, seems to be referring to Satan. And it seems that, you know, why is God, God's wrath against Tyre? Well, one reason might be because Satan had some sort of stronghold in that particular location. Um, God, he, he's active in the, in the world right now, not in hell where nobody is at this moment. So, yeah, how come um, people are making a big deal? Like, um, if you do go with Satan, it's portrayed as, like, oh, the worst thing imaginable when... Like, I'm not saying... You have to ask um, quick, because I want to get to more questions and... Yeah, just let you know. Well, basically, like, how come um, Satan drama is viewed as, like, this um, terrible land when it's, like, when we're on Earth right now, it's technically still belongs... To Satan, but it's like it's not as bad as we thought, as bad as we think. Like, how come um, Satan, Jerome, and Heaven are like so mm-hmm. extremely like, oh, this is so great and this is so bad? Like, well, I don't know where you're getting that picture from, um, except to say, I'll say this: is that right now we're living in a in a time where God's goodness is still in the world. His reign still falls on the just and the unjust. He still brings us blessings. He still showers upon us goodness and kindness. Now, if you want to give credit to Satan for that, that's a different issue. <laughs> like, but what what Satan's going to do, of course, is try to gather all, all of us together to ignore God, turn against God, take for granted everything he does, be unthankful for what he does, and live our own lives, our own ways, follow a false religion, follow no religion, just do your own thing, um, because he's mostly about us not being part of God's kingdom. Because by default, then that's his kingdom, you know. But um, but it's not it's not like you know, Satan's not in the in, experiencing the punishment of all of his wickedness right now. We don't we don't see that happening in this world right now. No, he's going roaming throughout the world seeking whom he may devour. Um, but he he'll devour you with, um, you know, chocolate and uh, and fancy sheets and <laughs> and. Netflix binge watching, if that's what gets you, you know what I mean? It's just whatever it is that's going to get you, that's going to get your eyes off of the Lord and your eyes onto self and to live a life that's apart from Christ. That's, that's his goal. That's his agenda. So he didn't, yeah, he's not like he's, he's tempting you with like, come jump into this fire. You'll love it. (laughs) No, he's, unfortunately he's smarter than that. Uh, What year was um, Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem? Sure. We often call it the triumphal entry, but don't worry if you don't say it right, because that's not even in the Bible. That's just in the, the paragraph summary that you get sometimes. Um, so that was, pr- there's debate on this. Some people think that the crucifixion happened in the year of 30, others 33 or 32, and others 28 BC, or AD, sorry, nobody thinks it's BC. Um, uh, so, but, but I think the majority view is 30, the year 30. Oh, can you? Um, I heard uh, it was from Chuck Smith, and he was saying that there was, I forget what he was saying, um, but he said that it was 483 years from the year 445 B.C. And I was doing the math, and I'm like, that's 38 A.D., but he was saying it was 36, and I'm like, so I didn't, I, I, obviously I just like, okay, I, don't, I really don't care. It doesn't really change my faith, but it's like, yes. is, this, is that true? Okay. What it is, is incredibly complicated. Yeah. So you're talking about the prophecy in Daniel 9. Yes. Okay. And in Daniel 9, how it's like from the, from the going forth of the command to rebuild the temple until the coming forth of Messiah, mm-hmm. it's going to be uh, 69 weeks, and the weeks are sets of seven, and yeah. each one of the sevens is a year. And so it's 483 years. Is that, is that the right man? Yeah. So what they do then is they take this, and there's different ways of approaching this. I have a video on Daniel 9. If you just, okay. just Google Daniel 9 and okay. my name, and it'll pop right up. But I get into it, and I actually put up the timelines and put up the math and all that for you, so that hopefully helps. But um, there's a couple different views of this prophecy and ways of trying to add it all together. But what, what they'll do, Pastor Chuck would do, and what uh, Chuck Missler, I think, would do as well, was to take the 483 years and then turn it into days. Well, back then, 
I'll skip explanations as to why, but they're saying each of those years is actually 360 days. That was their calendar back then, a 360-day year. Oh, okay. So then when you add it all together, you don't get as many years as you think you're going to get. Okay. So then it ends up shorter. So it doesn't go to 36 or whatever or 38 or whatever it was. It goes shorter than that. Okay, that answers the question. Okay. That, that, yeah. That's good. Yeah, but, <laughs> that's good. That makes but total I do sense. get into it. That makes total sense. Yeah. You know, because you've been like, you've had your yeah, head in that, yeah, so you know. It, it is really complica- complicated I'm stuff. I'm, counting, I'm going 365, and I'm like, no, it's yeah. not My favorite thing is watching <laughs> pastors off the top of their head try to summarize Daniel 9 <laughs> and how it, how it gets to Jesus. And I'm like, don't even try, man. It's like, you need to like, yeah. My goal was to try to make it as simple as I could, and it still isn't simple. <laughs> yeah, there's no year zero. No, okay. You go from one... BC to 1 AD, and that's it. Yeah. How did they keep track of the time back then? They had like Rolexes, <laughs> mostly. No, they actually had really good ways of keeping track of time, yeah. They would, whether they were looking at the stars or counting the days or using different kinds of clocks and stuff like that. Little sundials they wear on their wrists. What time is it? What time do you want it to be? <laughs> oh. Yeah. It's, it's but they they paid a lot more attention to the stars than we do, and part of the reason was for timing and things like that. I'll walk, I'll walk. Yeah. Yep, Carlos. Hello, YouTube. Uh, 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 I really enjoyed your video about a month ago on Halloween. Um, this year, my mom didn't put like a Dia de los Muertos thing because they also got that thing through their church, and I was I was like, why didn't you guys do it? And they told me about it, and then I watched your video, and it made more sense. So oh, we stopped putting that. Uh, cool. But I was just asking if you're going to do that. F- uh, any time in the future for Christmas. I know I could easily just go on Google and search why do uh, Christians celebrate Christmas in December, but I have a living, breathing Google search engine in front of me, so I'm just going to ask you, do you off the top of your head if you know anything about it. Um, well, how about ask me a specific question about Christmas? Yeah, well, I, I, I think it was something with uh, in the Byzantine era, right? Like 300 years after Jesus' death. That's when Christians started celebrating in December. I don't know. That's just like some knowledge I recall. So, um, why in December? Why like yes. why why December twenty fifth? Um, so there's a lot of. I actually do have two videos I've done on Christmas, but one of them is called uh, "Is Christmas Pagan?" So if you yeah, is Christmas Pagan, my name should pop up. But but uh, let me try and answer. We're right here right now. Um, so the the twenty fifth date. There's a lot of debate about this, and there's a lot of like mythy stuff online about how the reason why we, we celebrate December 25th is because it was Mithras's birthday, which is this pagan god who killed a bull. That's pretty much what we know about Mithras. Um, but supposedly he was born on December 25th. Okay, no, we don't know. We don't, as far as I know, we have, and I have looked at this, we have no record of Mithras his, having a birthday celebration of any kind, let alone on December 25th. Others say it was Saturnalia, the Roman celebration of Saturnalia, where they did all this weird stuff, but the, the Saturnalia was a festival that was that was several days long. During one period of time, it was short. Excuse me, it was shorter. Uh, later, it became a longer celebration. But guess what? It started and ended before December twenty fifth. It was never on December twenty fifth. Um, so that's off the table. Some would say it was the winter solstice. They were celebrating. Pagans were celebrating the winter solstice, and Christians decided to try to take that holiday and use it for Jesus. Right. But the winter solstice is not December 25th, right? We're, I think it's the 23rd, 22nd, 21st. There we go. So that also doesn't fall at the right time. So there is one ancient record that has a specific pagan holiday type event that happened on December 25th, and it's called Sol Invictus. Sol Invictus. And this was different Roman emperors would push different like deities. Like they would be like, the Roman emperor's like, I like this deity. We're going to build up his temples and we're going to inspire his worship. So Sol Invictus. And the first record we hear of a festival for Sol Invictus happening, and it's on December 25th. But the ancient record we have, I think it's in the 300s. Um, uh, I don't remember the exact date, but I think it's in the 300s. That same document where we have Sol Invictus on December 25th is also the same document that records that Christians were celebrating Jesus' birth on December 25th. Meaning that you can't really say which one predates the other. Um, does one predate the other? Are they in competition? Was it a coincidence? We just don't know. As far as why we do it on December 25th, well, there's one view, and the view is that um, 
that Jesus was born, this was a tradition, this is not in the Bible, right? This is just church tradition, early church history. Maybe Jesus was born the same day he died. That's their view. Maybe he was born the same day he died, which would put him born on Passover, died at Passover, and then now if you, you, uh, or is it, no, 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 he was, excuse me, conceived the day he died, pardon me, not born. Conceived the same day he died. So Passover would be about that time. Now, if you go nine months later, you have December 25th. So then they're thinking, okay, we've got, we have Jesus' conception and then his birth happened December 25th based not on a historical record, right? This is, this is based upon people going, maybe there's like some sort of meaning to the dates of the, and they're just guessing. They're just guessing at things. Um, so yeah, we don't know exactly why the early church did that. That might be the reason is they were looking to, they were looking for a symbolic day and others think perhaps because it's near the winter solstice. It's not on the winter solstice though. That's the thing to me. I, how, how do I make it about the winter solstice when it's not even on the right day? Like if that's what it's about, they put it on that day. It's not that hard. <laughs> so I don't make it about that. I think it's silly. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so it seems to be, a, it may have been a tradition relating to uh, when Christ was conceived to the time he was born. Um, yeah, that's the best that's the best answers I've come up with. I have more details in the video I mentioned uh, where I get into more, more. I specifically quote the texts and stuff like that I'm referring to. But there's so many myths out there online. And it's just, they just lie. They just make stuff up. And they just say things. And we just have to recognize that when it comes to controversial issues, like you can't trust Wikipedia, right? Because there's always some interest group or person who's going to change the article to fit what their view is because it's a controversial issue. And they're fighting for people's, and Jesus is pretty controversial. And so, so you so have to be careful about that, yeah. Does that help at all? Yes. Yeah. In, in my view, there's nothing wrong with, like, my birthday, right? We never celebrate, when I was a kid, we didn't celebrate on my birthday because it was too close to Christmas, so we would celebrate on some other day. I didn't care. I don't think Jesus cares. I love celebrating his birth, personally. I think it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we have in nowhere in the Bible do we have them actually celebrating the birth of Christ, except once, at the birth of Christ, and there's a massive celebration, and it involves angels, it involves shepherds, right? It's kind of a big deal, and so we we look at our celebration as a commemoration of that event, and I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's a, if I think what's lame is when you when you make it all about Santa Claus. And Jesus is not, he's like an, oh yeah, and Jesus, and Jesus. Okay, we're better now. We said and Jesus, so we're fine. Um, that's a sad Christmas to me. St. Nicholas. There's all these rumors about St. Nicholas. So here's, here's a funny one. Uh, so at the Council of Nicaea, which was about um, uh, how they would view the deity of Christ, they were discussing this at the Council of Nicaea. So in, in like 332, no, the 300s, 320, whatever it was. The Council of Nicaea, right? Um, the story is that there was this there was this heretic Arius who comes and he's preaching that this basically Jehovah's Witness doctrine <laughs> back in the day, and the story goes like this, and it's probably not true, but that Saint Nicholas traveled all the way to the Council of Nicaea, and he went up to Arius and socked him in the face. Yeah, jolly old Saint Nick. <laughs> That's the story. Is it true? Um, I, to my knowledge, we have no record of him actually being at the council. It's just a story. Um, there's a lot of traditions and legends about St. Nicholas that we don't really know exactly what happened. He was probably gave to the poor. He was probably a very giving, generous guy. But, yeah. I think he gave gifts to uh, children in the hospital. Yeah, there's a story where this guy killed these girls and he pickled them in brine. And St. Nicholas came and he brought them back to life. Um, these are traditions. These are ancient traditions that are probably not true. <laughs> what I'm saying is, it's hard to understand the real story about the real St. Nicholas because there's so many weird traditions about him. And, uh, and then it, it's, it does seem to be mixed with some pagan stuff over the years and mostly Coca-Cola advertising. <laughs> um, that's where the red suit came from, right? Where's the term for the time of the Gentiles, though? Let's see. Jesus uses it, and then it's also 
implied in Romans. Yeah, Luke twenty one twenty four, And Jesus says, so this is where he predicts the, not only the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but I think he's predicting ultimately things surrounding the second coming, right? Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear and he'll come. So Luke 21, 24, he says, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And there's this future sense in which the time of the Gentiles there's a time, there's a season where the Gentiles are trampling Jerusalem underfoot, where all this stuff's happening. When this stuff is fulfilled, then the next phase of prophecy is going to happen. Well, Romans 11.25, it says um, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel as they've rejected their Messiah until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Really interesting idea that there's this this trade-off, like, oh yeah, the, gen- the fullness of the Gentiles is going to come in, and then there's this revival amongst the people of Israel. The, these things seem to be paralleled in some sense to me. Yeah. So, uh, has it happened? I think no. The, I think the fullness of the Gentiles is coming in right now, okay. and I think that the future trampling of Jerusalem is, is part of the, tribu- the seven-year tribulation. Okay. And while it's being trampled, that's not, that I don't think is about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in so much as the trampling of Jerusalem. Um, and then at that very time, I think there's a revival in the people of Israel. And then uh, that, I believe that's future. So I think we're, we're experiencing the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. What's cool right now is there's kind of a, yeah. something of a revival going, uh, going on right now amongst the Jewish people. So it's pretty exciting. We're, lots of Jewish people are getting saved, coming to Messiah. And that's pretty cool. Do we have time for one more? Um, sure, last have, one. Okay. And then we're calling. Then I'm not doing this for a month. You can have the last one. Go ahead. No. It's not a question, but it's it's going toward your what you're saying about the Gentiles trampling underfoot. Yeah. Does it tie into the Revelations? What it says about in Revelations 11, two. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city. Shall they tread underfoot forty and two months? Does mm-hmm. does it tie into that too? I think that's the trampling. Yeah, tread underfoot. It's given to the Gentiles. It's, the Gentiles are trampling underfoot for forty-two months. And some people use that verse to talk about where's the the temple located in Jerusalem, and is I don't know about the answers to those questions but yeah i think it's related i think the and i think the words used trampled it and then let it be trampled underfoot and um it's given to the nations the nations is another way of saying gentiles yeah okay so last question last question last question let me see and that's it for this year okay <laughs> so works of the flesh are sin correct yeah okay so, living after the flesh is a departure from righteousness. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. I think so. Okay. I feel like so, I'm being um, tricked. In, <laughs> I, that's, okay. So, um, back to the Old Testament with righteousness. It was through the obedience of the law, correct? Is that, what, is that how they... Is that how they placed the righteousness was through the obedience of the law? Um, well, no, really, if they were going to gain righteousness, they would have had to do it the way Abraham did by faith. Okay. Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. But yet the law itself, following the law, would be good. It would be righteous deeds to follow the law. But as far as us being accounted as righteous people, mm. like I'm truly righteous, like Jesus, like no one is good but God, right? The only way you can get this is having it imputed to you through Christ, um, but anyway, go on. Okay, so um, so righteousness in the New Testament and, and now time is through Jesus Christ. Our righteousness is through Jesus Christ. Yeah. In a sense, it is Christ's righteousness. Our posi- I, I would look at it this way. Think of the term position and condition as being two different ways of thinking of this. So my position, I'm in Christ, and because I'm in him, I have his righteousness upon me. My condition, as I live life, I am trying to do good deeds. I am trying to serve the Lord. And in a sense, those, those good deeds are being given to Christ, and, uh, and that's good. That's all good stuff, but that's not making me righteous. Okay, yeah. Like, that's what Jesus does. Yeah. So, um, so, like I said, uh, the departing or the, the works of the flesh is a departure from righteousness. 
So on 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 that topic, um, go to my other post-it note here. So obviously, the the works of the flesh are not recognized by God. That's that post-it note. That was from uh, Ishmael and Hagar. Um, um, I guess my question is, if you, if you if you're saved and you still have or still live after the flesh, are you are you truly saved, or are you, is it just our nature to sin, and that's part of the sin nature? So, living after the flesh, are you truly departing from righteousness, or is it just because of our sin? Mm-hmm. At what point? I'll put it in my own words. <clears throat> At what point does your condition threaten your position? You know, like your condition, the way you're the way you're acting. At what point does that say you're not even covered by the by the blood of Jesus? I don't know how to answer that question. And and it, and maybe that's because life is so complicated and people are so complicated. Um, I do think that if we if we go down that road. In some sense, we're all we're all condemned because none of us goes a week of godliness, of pure godliness, without sin, you know, or probably a day. But yet, if we don't go down that road at all, we like make way for sin. It's like we make excuses. Oh, everybody messes up. Everybody sins. God expects it. You know, shall we sin more that grace may abound? No, 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 no. Don't do that. So I so I kind of want to say um, I think that the scripture. My understanding is the scripture seems to draw these two clear polar opposites. And and it's, and sometimes it's hard to see that you fit into one of those. But it draws these two opposites. And it's like, hey, you walk after the flesh, you're not saved. Hey, you walk in the spirit, you're saved. Okay, there's the two polar opposites. And you're like, sometimes maybe you feel like you're in the middle. And yet then the scripture speaks to you because it's like, don't walk in the flesh, walk in the spirit. Well, these commands aren't necessary for people who don't struggle. They're unnecessary. If upon salvation I live a perfectly godly life, a lot of the New Testament admonitions are unnecessary. Right? This is like, why am I being told to to put off lying? Like, put off lying. Me? Put off malice. Like, me? I'm a Christian. Christians don't struggle with malice. Well, then why do I have to put it off? (laughs) Like, so there's there's this assumption in the the New Testament that, yeah, there's a battle. Yeah, there's a struggle. Uh, then there's the situation of like Corinth or Galatians. Like Galatians, they're, they're, they're abandoning the gospel itself. And that's where he goes, I'm worried about you. Are you even believing in Jesus really? Um, but Corinthians is a little different and he's worried about them for a different reason. They're, they're living such compromised lives that it seems like he's questioning their salvation. But he doesn't say you're not saved. He's just like, I'm not sure. And that's my position. It's like, if you're living this really compromised life and you're unsure, well, that's probably where you should be. You should probably be unsure because of the compromises in your life. Although I can't tell you clearly where you fit if that's the situation. But that, un- that unsurety should stim- stir you to dedicate your life to Christ, refocus upon Christ, and get your life right. Um, but I don't know how to answer that question. I feel like there's a gray area there where I go, if you're here in the gray, be afraid. You know, and, and focus on Christ and be serious about, instead of going, Lord, can I just keep doing this and be okay, please? Instead of that, refocus on the Lord. Um, but yet there's some who are saved yet as through fire, First Corinthians says. And so the Lord knows. I, I don't know the answer to that. I do think that the righteousness and forgiveness of Christ is enough for me. And I struggle. Um, The same as everybody else. The same as you do. I think that's the thing. We're all the same here. And the struggles are like legit and real. And I need the grace of Christ to sustain me every single day. Every single day. And I'm grateful to, that his mercies are new every single day. But, yeah. I actually have like, two more questions to follow up. Yeah. I'll close. Well, let me close this in prayer, and then we'll. Uh, if you guys have other questions, I'll, I'll stick around. We'll we talk. I just feel like I'm holding everybody so long here. So sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> Father, we are grateful for the grace of Christ and the mercies that are new every day. 
Lord, we feel deeply and personally the feeling that we often fail um, and that we have struggles that are things that maybe we're struggling with that we've struggled with for years, for even decades. Lord, we, we don't want to be okay with issues and we don't, we don't want to get used to them. But we also, Lord, we, we appeal to the grace of Christ in our time of need and your sustaining constant forgiveness and mercies. We rely upon them. We, re- we rely upon your blood that cleanses us from all sin. And we pray, Lord, that you would just help us to be lights that shine, and Christians that live out from the inside out the Christian life, the Jesus life. And um, to give us wisdom in your word as we have questions. And we have more questions than answers. That's always the way it is. But we pray we would continue to grow in you and that you would be glorified in us. In Jesus' name.